Everyone Deserves a Place to Call Home is a collection of stories about people's experiences of homelessness. Funded by the Town of Victoria Park, the project acknowledges that homelessness can be defined in many different ways and affects many different people, and aims to raise awareness because shelter is a basic human right and everyone deserves a place to call home. This is Matilda's story. I'm going to be homeless for the rest of my life. That's just how you start to feel when you've spent the better part of the last 10 years homeless. And by that, I mean I have an established history of brief and unstable accommodation. At its worst, I moved 12 times in the space of two years. My relationship with homelessness has been one of my longest lasting and definitely one of my worst ones, which is actually kind of horrific if you knew some of the dirtbags that I've dated. So yes, I moved often. No, I was never on the street, a fact I owe entirely to my trusty beat-up Hyundai. But it was news to me and perhaps to you that homelessness is more than sleeping on the street. The actual definition of homelessness encompasses sleeping on the street, but also couch surfing, living in a car, and short and unstable stints of temporary tenor. Which is exactly what my years of leaning heavily on friends and shuffling through share house to share house, the flawed practice of subleases leaving me at the mercy of the whims of head tenants and shitty roommates that ranged from racist to violent was. It took me years to learn this and even more to accept that this label homelessness, synonymous with figures of shame, pity, vulnerability and contempt, the burdens and blights on society, applied to me. And if it did, it meant that when I took to the stage at 16 years old for my high school graduation and I didn't have a stable home to go back to, I was homeless. When you're young, you never really understand the depth of the worst things you go through. And at 16, I didn't understand at all. I just kind of figured everyone got thrown out of home in the midst of their ATAR exams at their very unforgiving elite public school. It wasn't my first time in this situation, and it wouldn't be my last. At 23, when I took to the stage at my university graduation several years later, I was starting to realise that my experiences weren't exactly normal, perhaps aware on some level that the label applied to me, but a long way from accepting that it did. Still, after being unceremoniously evicted from yet another house share for, now wait for it, being too quiet and not contributing to the vibe, I knew that despite my inability to accept this shameful label, I not only qualified for help, but I needed it. And so I grudgingly reached out to a youth homelessness service and was immediately waitlisted after they heard about my past eight years. After four long months of waiting for a placement and simultaneously attempting to hold down a corporate job while living out of a hostel, I finally got the call. I'd been granted my very own apartment. And now, to call it an apartment was a stretch, considering it shared the same approximate dimensions of a shoebox. It was a single square room that incorporated a tiny ledge kitchenette and a smaller room housing a toilet and shower. Also, you couldn't just live there. There was rent and there were rules. Among the most offensive to me was that I couldn't have more than two friends over at once and that I couldn't have anyone stay over for more than two nights in a week. It would have amazed me if I was able to fit another living soul in there, given the aforementioned shoebox dimensions, but it did piss me off. Because here's the thing, how are you going to charge me rent and then dictate what I can and can't do in the confines of my own rental? It's not like I'm trying to pull a Walter White out here. I just want to watch Love Island with the girls. 
I am not a woman that likes to be told what to do. And yet here I was, having to toe the line or be threatened with returning to homelessness. And that was what you were constantly threatened with. If you failed to remain employed or studying, if you broke curfew, house rules or pissed off the wrong worker, which is actually quite diabolical when you think about it. But this is, but this is what we do to homeless people. Whether it's just capitalism or a lack of empathy, we're so anti the idea of someone having something nice without working for it that we would house them in a shoebox, deny them autonomy and then demand they be grateful for it. Now, I'm not dumb. I know that all these measures were designed to make sure we made good choices. But I had made good choices and ended up here. Should I have not secured an ATAR that most kids would have killed for? Gone to law school and spend my youth avoiding all the drugs that my now non-homeless peers hadn't? By digress. With such strict rules, we led our tiny quiet rebellions together. We talked shit in hallways. We set off alarms to mess with the workers. We refused to dob each other in when we smelt a little weed, as they constantly encouraged us to. After reading the house rules cover to cover to find new ways to be annoying that didn't completely ruin my chances at housing, I decided to leave my muddiest, most unsightly sneakers outside my front door as my own personal fuck you. Which is why recently, when I was being unceremoniously ejected from the shoebox for aging out of the youth category, and not because they found out about all the bongs that I ripped, I was actually kind of excited. Because after 10 years of this godforsaken shit, I was so looking forward to putting all of this behind me forever. I was no longer a powerless teenager at the mercy of her unstable and mercurial mother or a broke uni student subsisting on occasional bartending shifts and sub-poverty levels of youth allowance. No, I had hustled and busted my ass from a public housing upbringing to a scholarship at a prestigious school to now finally being a bachelorette with her bachelor's degree. I had made it. I was now working full-time and making just more than minimum wage, but I was now finally able to qualify for Perth's $200-est rentals. But here's the thing. After 10 years of instability, it wasn't quite the victory lap I imagined. I was feeling a lot. Financially, terrified, not helped by the fact that I was entering the post-COVID rental market. You know, the one they were calling the worst rental market that Perth had ever seen. Rentals were harder to find, pricier than ever, and I hate to keep bringing it up, but I'd just gone 60k into hex debt for minimum wage. But I also was quietly enamoured with the idea of finally having my own space on my own terms, a place where I made the rules. No longer at the mercy of housemates, I could listen to the music I wanted at the volume I wanted, dance freely in the kitchen, sleep soundly in the middle of the day and cook in the middle of the night. I could put my paintings on the walls and grow plants on the kitchen windowsill. I could read by the window, laze around on the balcony, I could get up on a crisp cold morning and walk down to the cafe on the corner and I could live out my very tiny quiet dreams of a normal and safe life. To be stable, to be safe and to be happy. And I found the place with a big leafy jungle courtyard and a room of one's own, pets allowed. Signing on for a year's lease meant that I knew, for a fact, with certainty, signed in ink, legally binding, on paper, that I had a place to stay for a whole year, which never ceased to amaze me after my history of three-month stints. And so I began the process of packing up my shoebox. 
I spent a week straight on hands and knees, inhaling bleach as I scrubbed every single unremarkable grey surface until the place was barren and sparkling. And before I knew it, the moment was here. It's 10pm on an unremarkable Tuesday night in November. All there was to do was turn off the lights and hand back the keys. But this time, I was paralysed by a feeling that was new to me. Being homeless was a familiar kind of grief. I was used to the way things fall apart. I was an old hand at the stress of not having anywhere to go, the scramble to lock in a place for the night, and a veteran to the sudden upending feeling of accommodation falling through, loosening anarchy upon my world. But this feeling was foreign and unknown, confusing me with the way it completely immobilised me. It was that moment, looking around this empty room, that I realised I had never stayed anywhere long enough, securely enough, to feel settled, to stay still long enough for roots to form and take hold and build something I could get attached to, to feel like I actually had something of my own. I remember the disdain I felt for this place the first time I laid eyes on it. I still felt it. I never shut up about it. The zero pile carpet that ran through identical hallways of identical doors to identical shoebox sized apartments. The unopenable thin slivers in the wall that had the audacity to call themselves windows. Slivers that would not have looked out of place in a jail cell, failing to let in very much light or view and denying me the feeling of a fresh breeze on my face for years. The disgust I held for the harsh fluorescent lighting was matched only by my disgust at the tacky plywood furnishings. The personality-less grey and taut colour scheme the jarring solitary bright green accent wall. For two years, they had all worked together to remind me that homeless people did not deserve nice things. And for so long, I was lucky to be housed in these four walls at the mercy of rules I hated. A legal adult with no agency, I was prisoner to the whims of the powerful charity in charge, reminding me of being at the mercy of my mother, a situation which rekindled all kinds of long buried trauma. So what I never expected was that seeing the apartment emptied and stripped back to its bare bones felt like witnessing an autopsy. The parts were there, but the life was gone. The plants growing precariously on the high windowsills, the mountains of dirty pans in the sink, cupboards packed with snacks, doors moments from bursting open, haphazard paperwork strewn over every available surface and the faint glow emanating off the TV screen. These things are somewhere else now. Nothing that remains is anything I'd miss. What the space became? For a while it became more than a place to stay. From a place of housing, it unexpectedly became a home. Perhaps the first safe one I'd ever known. These four walls became my safe haven, my embrace in tough times, my holy ground. How many hard days did I crawl back here defeated and finally feel safe enough to fall apart? But my time is up. Too old to fit into the youth housing model any longer, I was forced to rip up my roots and pray that I could build this again elsewhere with no help. So in the middle of the night, the muddy sneakers disappeared from outside the door, and so did I. Life goes on, now in the idyllic western suburbs, between the river and the sea. I spend my days underneath a leafy canopy where women jog by in designer athleisure and perfect bleach blonde hair. 
My neighbour sells their house for a cool $4 million and I invest in ironclad car insurance in fear of the ever-present Teslas that lurk around every single corner. I leave the windows open for six months straight because I can't get enough of the feeling of a cool breeze on my face. And you know what? No, I haven't seen another person of colour in weeks. But the afternoon sun always streams through the open French doors and I while away many sunny afternoons under the ferns cat in lap, waiting for the floor to fall through. Because as it turns out, the only thing more resilient than me is trauma. Because every now and then, when I sing a little too loud in the shower or cackle a little too hard at a funny text, I catch myself and worry about getting a noise complaint if I've had any so far and if there's an eviction notice on the way. When I miss an area cleaning and it's noted in my rent inspection report, there it is again. The fear that I'll get pegged as an untidy tenant, lease left unrenewed, no rental reference to secure my next home. Whenever I have to query a water bill, raise a maintenance issue, or ask for more security after a recent break-in, even an hour-long session with a therapist won't convince me that speaking up won't have me seen as being too pushy, too annoying, and likely to be booted for ending up on the realtor's bad side. When my elation at the chance to decorate my own space turned into a paralytic fear at the realisation that any money I spent on furniture might later be needed for rent, rent that could save me from homelessness, I end up descending like a vulture on suburban verge fronts and manage to put together a reasonably cosy home, a feat that might be admirable if it wasn't due to a reason that was so fucking sad. So no, I don't get up on crisp mornings to walk to the corner cafe because I am paralysed by the need to hoard every single last dollar for the day I might need it. And when I'm sitting typing this story, a story I thought would be different because this was supposed to be over now, and my foster cats wander over to plop their little heads and paws along my legs, I have to do everything I can to stop myself from falling in love with them because I can't keep them, because I'm a liability who knows all of this could fall through at any second, and I can't subject them to that. Because four years ago, when my old uni lecturer, the only one I'd ever confided in about my situation, perhaps under the duress of my dire need for an extension, emailed me to say she hoped I was doing better, and I was, but I couldn't tell her I was. Because sometimes I am, but I'm always on the precipice of not. Being homeless makes you acutely aware of how easy it is to become homeless. It could happen to anybody. The only thing saving any of us is a safety net of friends or family that would take you in or money that you have to rent a hotel until you secure your next lease. But I know now how easy it is for these to fall through. I know how family turns sour, friends grow tired of always helping and money runs out. And I am tired, tired of my friends leaving like a father of being branded a liability, a burden, tired of being bitter and jaded, hating anyone that had a loving family that could save them from this. When a breakup or divorce can be the next thing that could see you out of a safe home and back in instability, it just seems safer to not spend money, to get attached to a pet, to move in with a partner or to have a marital home. I know I'm always one second from disaster and one disaster from setting off the domino effect that ends in homelessness. Because she's everywhere I go. Homelessness lives in my shadow, 
It used to be that every decision I made was soaked in the idea of avoiding it, but now I know better. I know that there are no good choices and bad choices. There is just misfortune. I'm a highly educated, intelligent woman who made every right choice, and even I couldn't avoid her. The worst is over, and there's so much damage to unpack, like how poverty and lack of affordable housing is the greatest predictor of homelessness, meaning the only thing I ever did wrong was being born, how I spent so long embroiled in my housing struggle that I'm behind my peers, watching them get married and build houses, but I'm still mentally 15 back when all of this started and I've had to put every single other thing on hold. My shame when I avoid eye contact with street sleepers as if I'm afraid they're contagious and I'll catch it. The hateful animal that it's made me, consumed by my bitterness for my lost youth, directed in a rage at those that never had to struggle, got to enjoy first loves, summers in Europe and Christmases with family. My sadness looking at my baby photos, thinking of the life that that girl had ahead of her. My anger when anyone remarks on my resilience, because I never wanted to be resilient. I was a child who wanted to be loved and to be safe. And the way I'm so used to chaos and instability, that the stability feels unsettling and I sabotage good things. But as I get to a point in life where I have the space to process the past 10 years, I know that she's still there still lying in wait, and I will never know for sure that I've escaped her until I'm in the ground. So yes, I'm going to be homeless for the rest of my life, and one day you might be too. Thank you for listening. Centre for Stories is a not-for-profit organisation with charitable status. Our team is small and nimble, and we love what we do. To help us to continue to support diverse storytellers, consider a small donation. You can donate at centreforstories.com.